Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. If you have your Bibles this morning, follow me into the book of Matthew, <coughs> Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11 for our scripture reading this morning. Whenever you get Matthew 4, 1 through 11, if you would stand, and we'll, and we'll hear the reading of God's word together. Hear the Gospel of our Lord. Then Jesus was led up into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be turned into bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but out of, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning you. And in their hands they shall lift you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is also written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur and said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Get away from here, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and immediately angels came and ministered to him. Since the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this word is for us this morning. This word is your word. And according to your promise in the prophet Isaiah, it will not go forth void. So we trust your promise this morning that, that your word will go forth and that it will have its intended effect in our lives. We ask it all in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, last week, um, last week I said that we were doing a Christmas, an Advent series. Sorry, I'm tripping over myself. Last week, I said that we were doing an Advent series uh, called A Confessional Christmas. And the reason we're calling it A Confessional Christmas is because we are walking through this section in our Confession of Faith, 3.07 to 3.11. Now, I didn't plan it this way, but this also happens to be where we are in our current study of the Confession of Faith uh, that we're doing on Tuesday nights. And so what we're doing is we're taking, in the sermons on Sunday morning, I'm taking it a section at a time and talking about what, what exactly it means for us to believe the things that our confession says about what Jesus came to do. So last week, we looked at 3.07. We talked about God's mighty act of reconciling love and how it was accomplished in Christ. And we, we looked at that through the, through the lens of Matthew 1, 18 through 21. And I actually have CDs this time. I've caught up on some of the sermon CDs. Uh, so they're out in the foyer if you missed it last week, or you can go online and watch it, listen to it that way. But we're in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. And we are talking about um, chapter 3, section 8 in the Confession of Faith, which tells us Jesus Christ 
being truly human and truly divine, was tempted in every respect as every person is, yet he did not sin. While fully sharing human life, Christ continued to be holy, blameless, undefiled, and thoroughly fitted to be the Savior of the world, the only hope of reconciliation between God and sinful persons. And so what we're doing this morning is we're looking at the sinlessness of Jesus in the midst of temptation. And we're going to talk about why that's important to our understanding of who he is, because it's easy for us to say, well, of course Jesus was sinless. He was God. And it's true. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what John 1.14 says. And our confession, and really the whole Bible, makes the claim that Jesus remained sinless while fully sharing human life. But what I want us to see is that Jesus wasn't simply sinless because he was, because he was God. He was sinless because he, he embraced what it meant to be fully human. Or rather, he didn't have to embrace it. It was just who he was. Jesus was fully human, fully God. And what that means is that Jesus knew what it was to be tired. Jesus knew what it was to be angry, frustrated, fed up, sad, sorrowful. Every single emotion that you have ever felt, Jesus has felt that too. And yet he did not sin. When Jesus came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he wept. And the Jews who were standing by even recognized that Jesus was moved by deep grief. And they said, behold, how he loved him in John eleven thirty six. When Jesus came into the temple and found money changers there, cheating people out of their money, uh, when they had brought an offering, um, he was angry. He threw them out of the temple. And so what was going on is... The money changers, the job of the money changers was actually to change money. It's not, it's not that they didn't have any business being in the temple in the first place. It's what they were doing there that was the problem. What the money changers were doing is their job was to take Roman currency and convert it to Jewish currency because you were not allowed to take Roman currency into the temple. And so there was an exchange rate that they had to abide by. But the problem was they weren't abiding by that exchange rate. They were cheating people. And it was common knowledge that they were cheating people. Jesus knew that they were cheating people, and he had enough of it. And so he went in there, and he just started throwing tables over. He was angry. He was frustrated. And as, he's, and his, as he goes into the temple throwing tables over, he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7, which was our Sunday school lesson from last week. And he said, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. And so what we see is that Jesus ran the full gambit of human emotions, just as you and I have, and yet he did not sin. Now, why is this important? It's important because we live in a world that believes in the old adage, to err is human. You've probably heard that. You've probably even said it. To err is human. But that's actually not true. It's not true because... If being human meant making mistakes, missing the mark, being imperfect, then that would mean that Jesus wasn't fully human. And if Jesus wasn't fully human, then Jesus can't show us what it means to be fully human. And so what does that all mean? It means that sin is not fundamental to the human experience. Sin is not fundamental to the human experience. 
We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, as Romans 3.23 says, but our sin is not what makes us human. What makes us human is the image of God that we bear, and when we fall into sin, we wind up betraying that image. But Jesus, on the other hand, he bore the image of his Father perfectly. And there's three scenes in the Bible where we see that Jesus bore that image perfectly. And first we see it here in the temptation in the wilderness. Last week when I mentioned that Matthew's gospel was intentionally laid out to show us that Jesus was the fulfillment of Israel, those weren't just fun facts. It's something that we see come into play here in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew 3, in the third chapter of Matthew, Jesus is baptized, and there's this experience where Jesus audibly hears the affirming voice of his Father, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And now that same Spirit that descended upon him as a dove is now driving him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's just like Israel. Israel escaped from Pharaoh and his army when Moses and Israel passed through the Red Sea. And what's interesting about that situation is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, Paul says that they were all baptized into Moses when they passed through the Red Sea. So all of Israel was baptized into Moses as they passed through the Red Sea. And when they got out on the other side, they got into a wilderness. And what happened? They were tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, just as Israel was baptized in the Red Sea and went into a wilderness of temptation for 40 years, so Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River and he goes into a wilderness of temptation for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's one of those patterns of Scripture that once you see it, you can't unsee it. The difference between Israel and Jesus is that Israel failed their temptation and Jesus succeeded in his. And the author of Hebrews wants us to be clear about that fact because he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, for since he, being Jesus, since Jesus himself suffered while being tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now Hebrews 2.18 is, is the last verse in Hebrews 2 and it leads into Hebrews 3 which talks about how Jesus is a better leader over his household which is the church than Moses was a better was a, was a leader over his household which was Israel. Because notice what Hebrews chapter 3 says just right after this it says for the one was count, uh, for the one was counted worthy of more glory than Moses in that he who builds the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone. But the one who builds all things is God. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, testifying about those things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, Christ is a faithful, uh, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of our hope firm to the end. So the rest of Hebrews 3 is the author talking about how Israel wasn't faithful in holding on to the promises of God. They failed to believe God, and because they failed to believe God, they died in their wilderness. 
Then in Hebrews 4, the author says that we need to have the kind of faith in the promises of God that those who died in the wilderness didn't have. That's why he says in Hebrews 4.11, Let us labor, therefore, to enter that rest, lest anyone fall by the same pattern of unbelief. Well, how do you labor to enter into rest? You do it by faith. You do it by faith. Because I didn't have this part in my notes, but if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, the author says something interesting at the beginning of Hebrews 4. He says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to come short of it. For the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word preached did not benefit them because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. It was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. So what happened was God spoke through Moses the whole time that they were going through the wilderness. And they did not have faith in the promises of God. And so everything Moses said to them fell on deaf ears. And so when the author of Hebrews says, let us labor, therefore, to enter that rest, he's not talking about laboring with with our own effort, our own works. He's talking about relying on the promises of God, chasing after that faith that the Israelites didn't have. Well, how do you get that kind of faith? It's a gift of God. Faith is a gift. You know, it's, it's that kind of gift that you receive. Whenever you say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now we hear that and we rightly admit that we have a problem. We have a weakness and a frailty to deal with. But Jesus isn't weak. And if we'll look to him, we can find joy in our labor. And that's why the author of Hebrews can say towards the end of Hebrews chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, who was in every sense tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us then come with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And see, here's the deal. We're weak, just like Israel was. Like, here's the deal. We want to look at these Old Testament stories. We want to look at these Old Testament narratives, and we want to find the hero in the story and say, well, that's us. I just need to be like that hero, and I'll be okay. Right? We do this with David all the time. We do this with David and Goliath all the time. We say, well, you know, I just need to be David, and if I just be David, I can destroy the Goliath that's in my way. And we'll, and we'll talk about Goliath in generic terms, like it's our finances, it's, uh, it's our finances, it's the trouble in our marriage. And, and we'll just say, we'll, we'll just say, you know, I just need to be more like David, I need to be courageous and kill my giants by faith. Listen, that's not the point of the story. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that David was a David was a symbol of Jesus who was to come. Goliath is a symbol of sin that sets out to destroy our life. And you hear that and you think, well, where am I in the story? You know, because we, we have that natural question because we're self-centered. Where am I in the story? Well, you're the Israelites cowering in the corner. We're, we're the Israelites cowering in the corner while David goes and does our work for us. 
So what it means is that the Goliath of sin, Satan, the devil, you know, flesh, all of that is out to kill us. And we can't tackle that on our own, but Jesus can. And so what we do is we trust in the work of Christ on our behalf. Because Jesus can slay the giant. We can't. And you know what happens when Jesus slays the giant? We get to partake in the victory as if we were the ones who slayed the giant. And so we, we think about the we think about Israel going in the wilderness, and we think, well, I wouldn't have done that. Oh, yes, you would have. I would have. I would have been disobedient and stubborn. You know, I we got to get honest with ourselves. And I think when we get honest with ourselves, we can actually come to a place where we can where we can go to God and say, God, listen, I'm I've failed. And I need you. I need your grace. I need your mercy. That's what the author of Hebrews means when he says, let us come with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the, in the time of need. In the time of need. There is an absolute need for mercy and grace. And the only way we'll obtain mercy and grace is if we understand our need for it. We don't, we don't have a need for mercy and grace if we think we can do it on our own. We're weak, just like Israel was. We're tempted to fail in our belief in the promises of God, just like Israel was. But the good news is we have a high priest that they didn't have. We have a high priest that they didn't have. And our high priest has been where we are. Our high priest has experienced pain, loss, and sorrow like we do. Our high priest has experienced temptation like we do. There's one thing I want us to take notice here. When we study about the temptation in the wilderness, we will often take note of the fact that when Jesus responded to Satan, he always responded to Scripture. And that's correct. But the Scriptures that Jesus quoted back to Satan specifically were promises. Jesus quoted the promises that God made to Israel in the wilderness. Every Scripture, just about every Scripture that Jesus Quoted back to Satan was a promise that God made to Israel in the wilderness. In Matthew 4 4, Jesus quotes the promise of God in Deuteronomy 8 3 that the word of God will feed and sustain you when nothing else will. In Matthew 4 and in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7 and verse 10, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 twice. And when you read that entire chapter, you'll find that God told Israel that if they would stay true to him, then, and, then he would cast out their enemies from before them and cause them to establish a legacy for future generations. But Jesus' experience in the wilderness, it wasn't his only temptation. It wasn't his only temptation at all. If we fast forward to the end of Jesus' life, we'll find him just before he is arrested, and he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane near the Mount of Olives. And look how, look how Luke records these events in Luke chapter 22, verses 33 through 46. It says, Jesus left and made his way to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom. And the disciples followed him. And when he arrived, he said to them, pray that you won't give in to temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed. 
And he said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not my will, but your will must be done. Then a heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him. He was in anguish and prayed even more earnestly. His sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. And when he got up from praying, he went to the disciples and he found them asleep, overcome by grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say that this is a temptation experience, but we get that impression by the fact that an angel came and, and ministered to him and strengthened him in much the same way that an angel came and ministered to him right after he came out of the, out of the wilderness in our text in Matthew 4.11. Jesus is faced with the temptation to run, to fight back, to exert his own will against the will of his Father, and yet he doesn't. Jesus is in the garden. He's praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. But if it's, but if it's, you know, if it's not your will for me to do that, I will submit to your will. And we're faced with the temptation all the time to go against the will of God for our lives. Because, because there's a part of us that knows that, that if we, if we consistently obey God, we'll run into conflict and we don't want to experience conflict. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure if I tell you to think of a person who avoids conflict all the time to, to a fault, you can think of somebody. It might even be yourself. We don't like conflict, and we will bend over backwards to avoid it. But at the end of the day, you're going to have a lot more trouble if you go against God's will than if you just submit to God's will in the first place. You're going to find trouble either way. You're going to find conflict either way. But if you follow God's will, God will see you through the conflict. God will see you through the trouble. God will be with you in the trouble. You don't have that promise if you go against God's will. And so Jesus is faced with the temptation to run, to fight back. But he doesn't. He submits to the will of God. And he even tells the disciples to pray that they not fall into temptation. And then as we move forward, we see one final temptation experience for Jesus. And it's Jesus dying on the cross. If we look at Matthew's recording of these events, in Matthew 27, verses 32 through 42, it says, as they came out, they, find, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. This man they compelled to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they crucified him, they divided his garments by casting lots to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among themselves for my clothing, and they cast lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. And they put this accusation over his head, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two thieves were crucified with him, one on the right, another on the left. And those who passed by insulted him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
Likewise, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. Notice <coughs> twice. Notice twice in that section that there was an accusation that he wasn't really the son of God. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the son of God, where have we heard that before? Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan said, if you are the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do that. Now we hear those demonic words again, except now it's if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. The same people who are mocking Jesus and saying, if you are the Son of God, are the very same people that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, when he says that if they would have known that Jesus was the very wisdom of God come down in human flesh, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. What's really amazing in all of this is that they said in verse 42, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe. They said, now, now, if you're really the son of God, if you really got all this power and authority, <coughs> then you can bring yourself down from the cross. And if you can do that, all right, we'll, we'll believe, right? It's clearly a joke. It's clearly a mockery. And yet it was him remaining on the cross until his death that caused a centurion soldier to believe. If we read forward in verses, beginning at verse 50, in the same chapter, here's what, we, here's what we see. And Jesus, when he had cried out again with a loud voice, released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the ground shook and the rocks split apart. The graves also were opened, and many of the bodies of saints who had died were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they feared greatly and said, truly, he was the son of God. The chief priests are the ones who said, if you're the son of God, bring yourself down from the cross and we'll believe. And yet it was the centurion who looked up at the cross, who saw the, the effects that the cross had, the dead being raised, the earth shaking. And he said, this was the son of God. Jesus didn't have to come down from the cross to create belief in that man, but he did have to stay on the cross to create that belief. They wanted him to come down from the cross, but Jesus stayed. Jesus remained right where he needed to be. Because in John chapter 12, verse 32, he said, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. We used to sing a hymn at Mount Carmel every once in a while. We used to sing it around Easter time. And the, and the chorus was, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. And I'm so glad he did. <coughs> we see the temptation in the wilderness. We see the temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see his temptation 
on the cross, and he stood strong through all of it, fully human, fully God. He showed us what it meant for him to be God in the flesh, and he, and he shows us what it means to, to live a fully human life. And he took upon himself the punishment for our sin. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is a story that never gets old. It is a story that reminds us of who we are and what you came to do for us. It is a story that tells us exactly what you paid, what cost your son for our salvation. Father, you longed for a family. You longed for a covenant people. And so you gave us your son. You gave us the life of your son for the life of the world. And we give you thanks, praise, and glory for it. And so, Father, at this time, would you remind us of the old story? Would you remind us of the gift of your son that makes us whole? We ask it all in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.